Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. Now, if we don't have universally applied, politically neutral standards for what content is appropriate online and what content is inappropriate, this is going to be a no-win situation. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. It's a great pleasure today to welcome to Good Company, Mark Penn. Mark is currently the chairman and CEO of MDC Partners and the managing partner and president at the Stagwell Group. And I'm happy to say an old friend with whom I've been through foreign wars, if you will. Mark, you're a famous person in the worlds that you inhabit, and we'll get into that. But you and I got the chance to be on, I don't know if we counted them, probably a thousand conference calls together back 10 or so years ago when I was fortunate enough to be engaged by Microsoft, and you were at the time as well. It was great fun to get to know you and also, as with most people, watching you on the field of play uh, other than knowing Mark Penn as a bold-faced name was a great experience for me and eye-opening in terms of who you are and what you do. So welcome and thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, lengthy introduction. You know, history repeats itself, although what well, we did maybe 10 years in Microsoft, but yesterday watching all the uh, tech executives come up before Congress, it was, I was thinking, oh, it was 22 years ago, I prepared Bill Gates to be in that hot seat. And of course, the one company not in the hot seat now is Microsoft. Well, what's so interesting, I remember when the idea of before people used the acronym FANG, there was the Gang of Five. And the Gang of Five was Facebook, Google, Amazon, maybe Netflix, but who wasn't in the Gang of Five, and I remember this well, was Microsoft. You know, as we look at companies' trajectories, and that's part of what we do, and that's our business, and helping companies in their growth cycles and, and how you do it, what do you attribute that to? I mean, great leadership by Satya Nadella and all of that, but, you know, Microsoft is one of those rare cases that was important in one era and fell from grace a bit, certainly in terms of the market, and son of a gun, came back to the lead position. How, you know, it's a journey. Well, the funny thing, as you know, I was EVP for advertising and then chief strategy officer at Microsoft, oh, I guess about five or six years ago, and um, uh, working closely with, uh, with Bomber and then with, with Satya. And, I, you know, ironically, when I went to take that job, one of the other CEOs of the, of the gang that you just mentioned said, oh, what are you doing that for? They'll be out of business in five years. And... That was sort of their image, and they just, first of all, I think that people have always misunderstood the, the adaptability. First, they had a great platform and continue to have a great platform in Windows. They had moved to the cloud, and, and truly running the modern office, right, through, through Word and Exchange and the security that's necessary and the coordination that's necessary to do that, and just took over the, the space of modern global business with some consumer in, in Xbox, but primarily now. That really, that, that really fuels the company. And 
people also underestimated the value of a sales force that's, that, that Bomber had built directly into corporate, which the others really didn't and don't have. From an enterprise perspective, yeah. right? Mark, let's talk a bit about what you released today, Harris Poll, the July findings. I was so intrigued by some of the data you pointed out about how brands are, are faring during this moment in COVID and, and you know what the common sentiments are. So I'd love you to w- talk us through some of the top line. Sure. I think one of the hats I wear are, are pretty much the uh, chairman of the Harris Poll. And uh, you know, John Gersma is the, the CEO, does, an, I think, an incredible uh, job uh, with the Harris Poll. And, and he's really shown something that, that I kind of thought was, was really the case, but the, the image and role of corporations now has actually tremendously risen in the eyes of the public. That is going through this experience and them having to rely on, you know, Amazon and Walmart and Federal Express and and Clorox and kind of these key companies that help them in healthcare. So what you really find now in terms of corporate reputation after years of, I think, you know, the Edelman barometer telling every corporate executive that they were terrible and terrible and and the public didn't like them and there was no trust, it, it really kind of turned out to be the opposite. When push came to shove, we were releasing kind of the top, you know, a hundred corporations, the, the, you know, the look at, at their image. Uh, but I think the overall most interesting finding is the image of corporations in America is up. And it's up because when the chips have been down, the companies really came through and delivered. Interesting. So, Mark, let me ask you a question. In your day job, chairman, CEO of of MDC and president and and strategic leader of of Stagwell, a managing partner, you're advising companies all the time on their creative applications. And I was chatting with some CMO friends today, a couple of whom have billion-dollar-plus budgets, uh, one was quick service. I said, you know, traditionally in quick service, you'd show beauty shots of, of the food. And now what I'm seeing moreover is the frontline workers and the people who are actually delivering the food and cooking the food and focusing on the people. To your point, it's focusing on back of house as opposed to front of house in some ways. Whether it was AT&T or Verizon or any of the telecom leadership, they weren't focusing so much during the early part of COVID on price and 5G. They were focusing on the frontline workers and keeping everybody connected and, you know, that the heartstrings, the things that were important to us. Are we at a point kind of like Jaws, just when we thought it was safe to go back in the water, Black Lives Matter comes to the fore as it needed to. Are we at a point where brands you're seeing and advising are ready to go back into good old fashioned, buy this now on sale here, you know, low price every day? Uh, you know, I, I think you're, you're in a little bit of a mixed mode now until, until we see what happens with, with the economy, right? If, you're, if your GDP is down a third, it's pretty hard to, to go buy, buy, buy. And, and I think that, I think people, I think the companies, and I think through this, Right. Obviously, more companies have taken, you know, socially responsible stands. But also we see that also what, what we really see is that that how P- companies value their employees has become fundamentally more important because the employees are the heroes. They are the first responders now of, you know, if they go into work and they serve customers. And and right now in that environment, everyone who is who is public facing is taking something of a risk 
right? And absolutely. And, and so I think that there there's really kind of a, a perspective on that, on the importance of the people uh, behind the companies, and it, and I think you see that reflected in the marketing. I think you see the importance of of taking really a stands right on Black Lives Matter and the importance of that in the marketing. Uh, I think though that it does have to be connected to the consumer experience. That at a certain point, the consumer experience here evolves. Perhaps it's more of an online experience than it, than it was, but creating now a customer experience with a brand that they believe delivers, that is, that is socially responsive, but also has a good product. Look, you can't, I don't think you can cover up a bad product with, uh, with uh, sticking We're your good employees. good creative, right? <laughs> you know, sticking your employees out for, for an entire, I'll never forget one time, um, we have a company that does uh, kind of advice on movie marketing. Right. And, and they, they, they did such an incredibly good job on proposing how they market the movie that enormous crowds showed up and they hated this movie and threw shoes at the screen. <laughs> so marketing got them into the theater. But once they got there, it was such a terrible film. Well, you, you know, Mark, the, the old expression, that's funny, but the old expression is, Bad creative can't be saved by good media, but good, good creative can be killed by bad media. If you place it in the wrong place, no one ever gets to see it. But if it's bad, I don't care where you place it, it's not going to deliver the desired result. But look, I want to get to what's happening in the world of Stagwell and MDC particularly in a moment. But you've already always been somebody who used data and used it brilliantly from your political background and, and your where you come from. Data has always been a driver for you. That's got to be a gigantic advantage today in, in the advice you give to the companies and clients and partners you work with at Stagwell and MDC. I, I always used to have this formula, data plus creativity equals strategy. Some agencies would take a creative idea that they just didn't sell somewhere else and they try to remarket it to you, right? Because they really weren't customizing it to the data. And at the same time, you know, just, just kind of flat creative doesn't work either. You have to have a data-oriented strategic insight. And those insights are not going to be provided by computers or streams of data. They're going to be provided through the right kind of analysis of what the strategy is, right? And then, then based on that strategy, incredible creative. And you put those two together, and I think that is the unbeatable combination. Because I think in the past, look, when there were just two marketing services, advertising and media, sometimes a great ad could overcome everything else, right? right. But, but now there aren't just two services. There's really understanding the customer journey, putting the understanding when and where you can capture people. As I always say, the simple way to express it is getting the right ad to the right person at the right time. But in order to do all that, you need to have a strategic conception. You need to have an understanding of what of data and how to reach people individually. And you need an ad that is fit for that moment that you intercept them. Fit fit for purpose, so to speak. But but fit for that moment, like, like you know, if I'm someone who's, you know, who's gonna be out there, you know, looking for diapers, I'm only gonna be looking for diapers for, for a very short period of time before I pick my, my diaper brand, right? And there are 300 million people and there are 4 million moms having, having a, a child and they're gonna be, you know, and that having maybe a month long where they make that decision. So 99% of my marketing could be wasted 
if I can't figure out how to solve that problem. And that's what makes modern marketing, I think, so interesting and why data and creativity together are, are so powerful. And that's what really I tried to bring together. Stagwell started from the data position first. What were you going to do if you're going to create a modern marketing company based on data and information? And MDC started from the position of what are you going to do if you're going to create creativity first? Which is why I believe Stagwell and MDC, both my hats are really two halves of of a very I know it's it's, it's a great way to look at it. It was the old description of uh, the definition of luck that I read years ago was the intersection of preparation and opportunity. But I love the idea of data and and creativity together equals strategy. But that's a great way to articulate it. Talk to me, Mark, about the combination that's in front of you between Stagwell and MDC. What were the core principles that you saw coming together by this combination of Stagwell and MDC? Well, as you know, I spent a few years working for one of those bigger holding companies and I saw certain strengths and weaknesses, right? And the critical weaknesses were failure to adapt to the uh, fast changing data-based or digital culture. And then second, a kind of dumbing down of, you know, creative, right? Necessarily because of, I think, the failure to hold on to the talent that you need to create that creative. So, as I said, when I went into the marketplace coming out of Microsoft, I said, well, okay, I'm really well positioned based on my history of data to put together the kind of platform building that Code and Theory does, the kind of performance marketing that PMX does, the kind of research that Harris and the National Research Group do, the kind of politics and that, that, that some of our political and public affairs do. But on the other side, you know, I think that really gets extended to clients when you put the two together. The ability to put together that combination, right, of of kind of frontline creativity and understanding of the advertising world with kind of the new world of being able to make almost anything on the digital platform, that just works tremendously well. Let me switch gears for a second. You wrote a piece earlier in the summer that talked about the important role that marketing is going to play in the post-COVID kind of economic recovery. And I happen to share that view, but I'd love you to kind of illustrate a couple of those key points for our listeners, because marketing can lead us out and marketing can be that light at the end of the tunnel that's not a freight train coming at you if we use it right and we understand the impact. Look, I think companies coming out of this thing are going to fit into one of three bins and they're going to have really one of three or more critical questions. I think for those who benefited from this, which is not a, not a lot, but there are, you saw P&G earnings, you know, way up because household products benefited because of the stay at home, uh, because the people are staying at home and cooking at home and all of those things. And they got a whole bunch of new customers. So their question is going to be, how do I keep those customers, right? It's marketing that can perhaps keep, get, help them keep their customers so it doesn't go back to the way it was and they lose all those new customers. And some things like, like groceries online, there's certain Zoom, there are certain things that are where technology move things forward, but then there are other things like products and sanitation and hygiene where whole industries have been affected here and they're gonna to wanna to keep those habits going. Then I think you have a, a second group and the second group is how do I get my customers back, right? So the beauty industry, the cosmetic, you know, industry, the clothes industry, 
There's a whole bunch of industries here that have nothing to do with the safety of things that have seen their customer bases shrink. And their question is, how do I get people yeah. feeling good about dressing up and going out and, right, and doing those things that they did? And then, and then the third group has really has, in addition, has a safety issue, right? Which is, which is not just how do I get my customers back, but how do I prove to them that flying on an airline or staying in a hotel is actually something that they can comfortably do or coming back to the casino or going back on the cruise, right? Even after the, the virus is largely gone or, or we have a vaccine. And so communications and marketing, these things are not gonna happen on their own. Left to their yeah. own devices, those companies with new customers will lose them. Those companies who lost a lot of customers won't get them back the way they, the way they thought. Right. And the customers with safety issues, they don't overcome them. I'm, you know, people have to feel comfortable going into a movie theater uh, and, and sitting there and munching on the popcorn again. Right. And, yeah. and, and these things, these are this is really why marketing has a big job here, you know, to fulfill in terms of communicating and figuring out the strategic communications here that will be effective in doing these jobs. So, Mark, it would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity less than 100 days away from what I think many believe is probably maybe the most consequential election. I'm curious what you think today as we're sitting here. Polling is something you know better than anybody, uh, arguably. What should we expect? What do you think? And I'm not asking you to call winners or losers unless you want to, but what do you think and, and what should we be following and what should we be paying attention to? Now, I, I think that I have now telescoped what's going on to the it's the virus, stupid. The voters are being driven by the fact that their lives have been upended by a virus. So they're sitting here. It was supposed to be over. It's not over. Right. And they're and they're getting madder and madder about about that. And they want to see they want to see something done about it. And so so it's natural that you would think that the thing that is affecting everyone's life that they're living through, right? And they may have a relative or, or a grandparent who passed away or got sick, or they may have people who, or they'll have kids right now that may or may not be going back to school, or they're sitting in their home, you know, isolated, or they're not, you know, not able to work, or they're among the 25 million unemployed. Why would anyone think this election is about anything else, right? Yeah. And so I see so much, uh, <clears throat> verbiage spewed about all these other things when right now there's a single issue and they're going to they're going to elect the people who they believe are going to do a better job at, at getting them out of it. What I'd love to do in, in the final few minutes here is is kind of make it an open conversation. You've got so much in your in your head. What, what would you like to share with us that we should be focused on as the marketing community in this next cycle here right now over these next few months, whether it's from the political aspect or just the pure marketing sense? My, my general advice here is we, we need a little less emotion about things if we're going to be good. If we're going to be good analysts about what's really going on in society, right? We, we're, we're going to have to kind of step back. Yeah, I always started out with the polls because... The polls at the time when I did them with, uh, with if you go back to President Clinton or as far back as Ted Kennedy, uh, <laughs> uh, I can go way, way back on you. They were a way of separating what was going on in, quote, the Beltway, right, or what the Washington Post had as headlines, and what was really going on in the country. 
Right. And, and so the Twitter sphere is like the Beltway times 10. What is really going on in the country? And what everybody is, is getting, you know, fighting the, the, the battle of the day about or exercise is, is kind of quite different, right? You have to get back into the mindset of what is your consumer really struggling with, right? They're stuck where they are. Maybe they're isolated from their family. They're, they're afraid, like 80% are afraid now to go out of their house, right? And, and so there's a curtain of fear, right, uh, across the country. They're hurting, you know, economically if they're among those who, you know, the 20 or 30% of the households that, that see things getting worse. They, they don't know what is going to happen. 40% think it's going to get worse. 25 or 30% think it's going to get better. They don't have a, a clear end of this in sight. You know, my advice to, to, to marketers generally, is you've got to understand what your customers are really thinking rather than plug into something that you hear a talking head say or that you see in the Twitter sphere. And if you do that, you're really going to connect in a much more real way. I think the final thing I'd like to talk about is the, the social media sphere and the boycott that was initiated against Facebook, and in some cases, a broader boycott of just social media in general. Well, I think, I think the, the, the boycott needs a, a clearer purpose, right? And another poll finding I'll, I'll, I'll throw at you is, is, I ask people, do you think the Twittersphere is suppressing liberal speech? Well, about 40% said that. Said, so do you think the Twittersphere or the social media platforms are suppressing conservative speech? About 60% said that was the case. So when you, you know, look at the cross tabs, 70% of the country believes that social media platforms are suppressing speech. Largely, they believe it's their own. So that's a, that's a, that, that is really a serious problem. And so suddenly the social media companies either have started to become or been demanded to become arbiters of, of content, and there are no standards for doing that. And I know that when there were no standards for content on TV, we looked at regulation, and then we looked at you know the industry, and we came together and we created standards. And you still see those standards and those ratings today. Now, if we don't have universally applied, politically neutral standards for what content is appropriate online and what content is inappropriate, this is going to be a no-win situation. There can be a boycott for, for who? For the social platforms and for society as a whole. For yeah. society as a whole, we we let things get so big, right? And and we didn't really kind of figure out how to grapple with this. You wouldn't have publications where the advertisers decided the content, would you? Well, but what's interesting, you know, Mark, you say that when you go back to the early days of television, advertising was what determined the content. The advertisers had control. What happened was somebody flipped a switch. I've always said that I wanted to be in that meeting when all of a sudden Hollywood television said, oh, no, no, Mr. or Mrs. Advertiser, we're in charge. You're not. And that did happen because you look back in those days, you always had to satisfy the advertiser, whether it was the Westinghouse Theater or the Colgate. You know, they, they controlled the content. And now they don't. I, I think that's exactly right. And then and then I think we all said, well, that doesn't make sense. And, and because artists are going to control the their artistic content, right? And right. so so now do you want to go back to advertising? <laughs> I, no, what you really need here are standards. Standards. 
and you need universally yeah. applied standards that are agreed to. Otherwise, I got 70%. You're, you're never going to win. Liberals think they're being being right. uh, removed and conservatives think they're being removed. Yeah, Mark, it's, it's so interesting. The example I've used about this issue as to whether or not the platforms are media companies or are they platforms, I likened it to the Super Bowl a wardrobe malfunction of several years ago with Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson. CBS was subject to almost losing their license from the FCC, but were fined for that act. Now, do I believe that the producers of the halftime show knew that that was going to happen? No. Do I think that was an artist decision or a joke with Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson? More likely. But the answer is CBS was going to be held responsible as the platform, if you will, the media company that broadcasts that. The platforms aren't responsible and yet they're really media companies. And it's just, I think it's to your point. No, I, I mean, I think the, the, can they have it both ways? If they start to become editors of content um, to, a, to a greater extent, look, are they in some sense open platforms with rules? And if we can have open platforms with rules that we'd understand where you can't advocate violence, where you can't, you know, use indecency, you, you know, to have the certain rules that are, are rules of the road, like television had, right? Uh, now the public, the, the airwaves were treated as public property. And so they were able to create those rules. The internet, surprisingly, even though it's probably more public property in many ways, is not, not. Is not treated like public property. But, but again, how do you get it? We're going to have to get out of this conundrum because it's ultimately right now corroding the faith uh, that people have in the social media platforms, it's corroding the faith that the advertisers have because the advertisers are boycotting them, right? It's corroding, they're corroding the faith on the people advertising or, or, or participating in because they're afraid that their content, this is a bad situation that's getting worse until somebody comes in here with some intelligent solutions. And I haven't seen yeah. any, anybody doing that no. yet. I share your pain. Well, Mark, I want to thank you Truly, uh, I always love the opportunity to chat with you about these kinds of things. Mark Penn, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I'm Michael Kasson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Jessica Kreinchich.